Former President Donald Trump says he'll appeal a Colorado court's decision to keep him off the ballot for his role in the attack on the Capitol. It's Wednesday, December 20th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Hamas says its top leader is in Egypt for talks on another possible pause in the war with Israel. Also this hour. This is definitely a top-tier, high-impact event in terms of rainfall and flood damage across the area. We go to Maine, which is still dealing with historic flooding from Monday's storm. And we talk with the last Coast Guard lighthouse keeper. She's leaving Boston Harbor after two decades on the job. I never wanted to get like settled into it, but every year that I was on the island, the heartstrings connected a little bit more. Bruins and Celtics both lose sunny in the 40s today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Colorado State Supreme Court has declared Donald Trump cannot appear on the state's Republican primary ballot next year. The court narrowly ruled the former president violated the U.S. Constitution's insurrection clause by his January 6th words and actions. Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie, who is no Trump fan, disagreed. And I don't believe that it's good for our country if he's precluded from the ballot um, by a court. Like, it's bad for the country if that happens. Now, the other reason I believe that is because, you know, he will have had to incite insurrection, be a part of an insurrection, for him to be excluded. There's been no trial of him on that. Trump has vowed to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, but the Colorado justices ruled if the appeal is still in process by January 5th, Trump's name should still be included on the GOP primary ballot. Today in Atlanta, a federal judge will consider whether Georgia's revised political maps comply with the Voting Rights Act. A judge found they illegally diluted the power of black voters. But Democrats say the problem has still not been fixed. From member station WABE in Atlanta, Sam Greenglass reports. The civil and religious groups who sued over the maps say Republicans shuffled black voters around rather than providing new political opportunities that reflect Georgia's diversifying population. The state, which is appealing the order to draw new maps in the first place, say nonetheless Republican lawmakers created the number of new majority black districts prescribed by the court. If U.S. District Judge Steve Jones finds the maps still don't comply with the redistricting order, he can appoint a special master to draw them. Any decision will likely be appealed. But time is running out. The state has to prepare ballots for the 2024 elections. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Many disability rights advocates are raising concerns about a Census Bureau proposal that could shrink the national rate of disability by about 40 percent. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong reports Tuesday was the last day to submit public comments for the first round of feedback on these proposed changes. The Census Bureau says to get more detailed data about people's disabilities and to get in line with international standards, it's proposing changing its annual American Community Survey to ask people to rate their level of difficulty with certain activities. Its main estimates of disability would count only the people who say they have a lot of difficulty or cannot do an activity at all. Lydia XZ Brown of the National Disability Institute says they're concerned the data would not represent many disabled people. That has to be able to capture the wide range of disability experiences, including chronic and intermittent experiences of disability and people with psychosocial disabilities. Another round of public comments is expected in the spring. Hansi Luong, NPR News. On Wall Street, stock futures are lower. You're listening to NPR.
I'm Rupa Shinoy. This is WBUR in Boston. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will offer a formal apology this morning to two black men who were wrongfully arrested in a 1989 murder case. Alan Swanson and Willie Bennett were arrested when Charles Stewart falsely accused a black man of killing his pregnant wife in Mission Hill. It was later revealed that Stewart himself orchestrated the shooting. The accusations resulted in racist harassment of black men in Boston by city officials and the Boston Police Department. Wu says she'll publicly acknowledge the harm done to black communities during that time. A group of nearly 100 state lawmakers is urging Attorney General Andrea Campbell to take legal action against firefighting equipment manufacturers. That equipment is commonly made with PFAS. Those are the so-called forever chemicals that don't break down quickly in the environment. They're also associated with an increased cancer risk. State Senator Michael Moore from Worcester co-led the effort. So at the same time, we're asking them to risk their lives to, to come in and save us or to protect us or our property. We are allowing them to wear gear that is contaminated with a known carcinogen and exposing them to this carcinogen. A spokesperson for the attorney general's office did not respond to a request for comment. Doctors who see mass health patients will be getting an increase in their payments in the new year. Dr. Barbara Spivak is president of the Massachusetts Medical Society. She says doctors who see a high percentage of patients on public health insurance plans have been struggling. Spivak says primary care today requires a team, not just a receptionist, making appointments. This is one step forward, particularly for those who have a large mass health population. Many of them are pediatricians and family practice physicians to be able to build the team that they need to support the work that needs to be done in primary care. The increases range from 25% for adult patients to 35% for pediatric patients. The population in Massachusetts is up and back on trend with pre-pandemic levels. It was one of only 11 states to see its population grow after a decline last year. The latest report from the Census Bureau puts the state's population at just over 7 million. The report says fewer deaths, more births, and immigration contributed to the increase. A Springfield man is being awarded one of the highest civilian honors for heroism. Pedro Perez received the Carnegie Medal for helping a police officer stop an armed robber last year. The medal is awarded to people who risk their lives trying to save others. It's 7.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Home for Little Wanderers, creating better, brighter futures for kids because no child should go through life alone thehome.org. And Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. The Celtics lost to the Warriors 132-126 to in overtime last night in San Francisco. They'll visit the Sacramento Kings tonight. The Bruins also lost in overtime. They fell to the Minnesota Wild 4-3 to at the Garden. The Bees' next game is Friday. Sunny today, it'll be in the low to mid-40s, clear overnight with temperatures in the 20s, sunny tomorrow and in the mid-30s. It's 31 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. In a few minutes, we'll hear details about that historic court ruling that bars Donald Trump from the primary ballot in Colorado. But first, back to the Israel-Hamas war. The health ministry in Gaza says the death toll there is rapidly approaching 20,000 as Israel continues to bear down on Hamas, which has been the governing authority in the Gaza Strip. Yesterday, the U.N. Security Council delayed a vote on another ceasefire resolution, fearing another U.S. U.S. veto. The U.S. has refused to sign on to calls for a permanent ceasefire, but American officials are increasingly public in their appeals to Israel to do more to protect civilians in the Gaza Strip. Here is U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin from earlier this week. We will continue to stand up for Israel's bedrock right to defend itself, and we will also continue to urge the protection of civilians during conflict and to increase the flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza. Members of Congress are calling on President Biden to do more to pressure Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for a change in his military strategy. And public opinion is split over Israel's military response. And all this raises a lot of questions about the relationship between the U.S. and Israel right now, and if there's more the U.S. could or should be doing. We called veteran diplomat Ryan Crocker for his take on all this. He served nearly four decades in the Foreign Service, serving in many high-conflict areas as U.S. ambassador to Iraq, Syria, Kuwait, Lebanon, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. Good morning, Ambassador. Good morning. So the Biden administration's pleas for Israel to change its military strategy in Gaza or to at least to do something to limit civilian casualties don't seem to have made any difference. Why do you think that is? Well, clearly Netanyahu is showing that he is in charge and that he will fulfill his pledge to destroy uh, Hamas. It's uh, not a viable proposition, unfortunately, and I hope that uh, as this proceeds that we will see at least a change in tactics, if not not in strategy. So, so I want to hear more about why you say that in a, in a minute, but at first I want to ask, is there some leverage the U.S. has that it's not using? I really don't think so, Michelle. Uh, it's not viable politically, I think, for the U.S. to... Uh, say that we will cease military assistance to Israel unless they uh, do this or do that. That's not the way this relationship works. Uh, I think that we will continue to uh, uh, exhort them to pursue their goal, but to do so in a way that limits civilian casualties, because it really is, uh, 20,000 is a huge number. Uh, and there is a shift in world opinion, if not in U.S. opinion, that uh, Israel, for its own sake, needs to take account of. What, what is your sense of what role the U.S. domestic politics plays in all this? I mean, thinking that, as you know, we just said, that members of the president's own party want him to take a more forceful approach with regards to Israel. The president's facing re-election next year. And as we just said, like public opinion on Israel's military actions is divided. So what, what is your sense of what role that plays in how the administration is approaching this? Well, the administration, I think, has been heavily engaged at a variety of levels with Israel uh, on this. Uh, we've seen Bill Burns out there as as well as Tony Blinken, Lloyd Austin. Uh, we are uh, thoroughly engaged on this, and I think that will continue. I, I think that uh, the administration's calculations on this are that uh, we need to see this phase of the fight wrapped up and wrapped up swiftly and move on to um, a day-after approach. And I think if that happens, uh, say in the next 10 days or so, by the end of the year, 
uh, I think you'll see a shift in uh, opinion in the U.S. and globally uh, to be less uh, critical of the U.S. as well as less critical of Israel. Mm. But again, uh, this current phase of uh, fighting uh, just has to come to an end. But why do you that say doesn't why mean the campaign has to stop? But why do you say the doesn't U.S. doesn't the have that has much? To stop. But I, I still want to understand why you say the U.S. just does not have that much zone of influence here. Well, I think we have considerable influence, and I think we're using it. Hmm. Uh, again, we've we've just heard uh, Defense Secretary Austin speaking, uh, and we will continue to press Israel not to cease the campaign, but to uh, apply a different set of tactics as this winds uh, winds down. And uh, although it may not look like it, I think we're getting closer to uh, an end game uh, in in the sense that. Uh, uh, I think we may see in uh, with within ten days by the end of the year. I think it's uh, reasonable again with a lot of U.S. involvement that we will see an end to this kind of uh, the kinds of uh, major operations and very heavy casualties that we're sitting and, uh, and we're why, seeing now. And why do you say that? Well, uh, Hamas is uh, taking a lot of punishment and losing a lot of fighters. Uh, and I think that uh, as this phase progresses, I, I think you're going to see uh, is Israel shift its tactics. Again, not to stop the fighting, uh, but they're uh, not going to be confronting major formations of Hamas fighters. So uh, it, 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 I think the, the, uh, there's going to be attrition here. There has been. And I think that we can then expect uh, Israel to scale down and shift tactics and, for, and, the, uh, for the next steps here. And what would that look like? And what, what would, I mean, we only have about a minute and a half left and it's such a big topic, but what, what steps do you think would lead to the bigger issue here, which is a, 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 a longer term, a long term piece? Well, there are some major, major questions uh, uh, out there. Clearly, we are uh, hoping uh, that Arab states will play a role in a, um, uh, a post-major conflict, Gaza, uh, that Palestinians who uh, dislike Hamas as, as much as, uh, as we do will step forward. Uh, but there are also just huge impediments, the uh, hostages. Uh, it's heartbreaking to think of what they've been through, and uh, Israel has to conduct this these next phases in a way that uh, uh, will ensure these hostages come home. And that is not going to be easy. Mm, no. What are you most worried about? I am I'm most worried about an expansion of the conflict, uh, maybe slightly less worried than I was before. What we, It's important to think about what we haven't seen. We haven't seen uh, uh, the West Bank blow up. We haven't seen uh, Hezbollah launch a full offensive. Uh, and we haven't seen the most extreme of political reactions from other Arabs. Mm -hmm. Only Jordan withdrew its ambassador. They have a particular problem uh, with uh, a lot of Muslim Brotherhood support in Jordan. Okay. Uh, other Arab states have uh, okay. resorted to a lot of rhetoric, but basically we're keeping all the doors open. That is former Ambassador Ryan Crocker. He's a, a diplomat with a deep experience in the region. Ambassador, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you, Michelle.
The Colorado Supreme Court issued an historic ruling yesterday. It said Donald Trump is not eligible to become president again because he engaged in insurrection. Now, the decision bars him from the state's primary ballot. Now, right away, Trump's campaign said it would appeal the ruling to the U.S. Supreme Court. For more on this, I'm joined by Colorado Public Radio's Benta Brooklyn. Benta, good morning. Hi. So the ruling of this case stems from Trump's role in the January 6th events. What did the court decide exactly? This is a case that challenges Trump's eligibility based on a provision of the U.S. Constitution, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And it essentially disqualifies anyone from office who's engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the government. The decision here in Colorado was close. It was four to three. But the majority said, yes, Trump's actions leading up to and during the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol meet that threshold of engaging in an insurrection and therefore disqualify him from running for president. Colorado's Supreme Court justices made it clear in the decision that they understood the stakes. They said they're in uncharted territory and they didn't reach these conclusions lightly. But they said it's their solemn duty to apply the law without fear or favor and without being swayed by public reaction to the decisions. And what has the Trump campaign said in response? A spokesman called it completely flawed and said they'll immediately appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, where they expect it will be overturned. Trump's campaign has long said that the lawsuit is undemocratic and that his speech was protected under the First Amendment. And we should mention that there is a Republican supermajority on the U.S. Supreme Court who may be a lot more receptive to the arguments Trump's trying to make. Sure, of course, and three of whom he appointed. But can you say a little bit more about the clause in the Constitution, Section 3, that came into play here? Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was ratified after the Civil War, and it was really designed to bar former Confederate leaders from holding office. It's barely been used since then, but January 6th gave it a new application. In Colorado, six unaffiliated and Republican voters filed the lawsuit backed by a liberal group, and there have been a number of attempts by liberal organizations to use Section 3 to disqualify Trump in states like Michigan, Minnesota, But those cases were dismissed. The court said the states didn't have the authority to make the decision or that it required congressional action. In Colorado, this is the first time the clause has been successfully invoked against a presidential candidate to be barred from the ballot. So this is heading to the Supreme Court. Yeah, all along, election officials and legal experts have been saying that this is a question that may need to be resolved by the Supreme Court. One important note here, The Colorado justices stayed their decision until early January, and that's when Colorado's ballots are set to be finalized. So Trump's name would appear on the ballot if the Supreme Court appeal is still pending. I think it's fair to say that politically, we can expect to hear a lot more about this. It fits into Trump's narrative that his political enemies are out to get him. And already last night, his campaign was fundraising off the ruling. That is Benta Brooklyn with Colorado Public Radio. Benta, thank you. Thanks so much. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we'll hear about recovery efforts in Maine from damage inflicted earlier this week by a major storm that battered the East Coast. Here in Massachusetts, 24,000 customers remain without power. It's 719. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? 
to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com And the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. For decades, the state of Virginia made behind-the-scenes recordings of executions. Now relatives of those inmates want the tapes to be made public, but the state is refusing. I just know that that's my brother. I still love him to this day. If there's something out there about my brother, I would like to hear it. I'm Elsa Chang. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. Clear skies and highs in the low 40s today. A few clouds move in tonight as it falls to the upper 20s. It might also get a bit windy. Tomorrow, sunny and highs only in the mid-30s. It's 31 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Actors frequently learn new skills for their movie roles. For the boys in the boat, these actors had to get really good at rowing, good enough to believably play the U.S. men's national team in the 1936 Olympics. NPR's Manolita El Barco brings us the story behind a holiday movie that's based on a best-selling book and directed by George Clooney. The Boys in the Boat is based on a real-life group of students at the University of Washington. These were hardscrabble kids. They were the sons of loggers and dairy farmers and um, shipyard workers, and none of them had ever rowed a lick in his life when they turned out for crew at Washington. Daniel James Brown, who wrote the book the film is based on, says the guys overcame the odds to beat rivals at UC Berkeley and elite universities on the East Coast and in England. And three years after they learned to row, they competed against the German team in the 1936 Olympics, presided over by Adolf Hitler. Getting the boys on the boat to the screen wasn't easy. Brown says he sold the film rights more than 10 years ago. Originally, it wound up at the Weinstein Company, which was, of course, a disaster. Film production was stalled for years as producer Harvey Weinstein was tried and eventually convicted of rape and sexual abuse. After Weinstein's company dissolved, MGM picked up the film rights and hired George Clooney to direct. I said in the auditions to the guys, dude, if you're not an athlete, we'll have to fire you because we can't do it. You can't just come in and say, yeah, I'm an athlete. 
Clooney's actors may have played soccer and other sports, but rowing was new to them. They had to look like they were an Olympic team. Yes. And at the beginning, they didn't necessarily. That's maybe the greatest understatement in the history of that understatements. Was very kind. That was really yeah. kind. Thank no, you so generous. No, it was really like uh, it was shocking. You know, we could put eight kangaroos in a boat, and it would have been more coordinated when we first saw with, with, those, with their little arms. Yeah, exactly. Clooney filmed the story in England chronologically as the actors built up their skills and endurance. It was a gigantic task. British actor Callum Turner plays the main character, Joe Rance. We did five months of training, basically. We rode four hours a day for two months. We worked out for an hour on top of that. We had the nutritionist, physio, PT, the whole shebang. And as you know, rowing is excruciating. I did know. And during my interview with Turner and Clooney, I mentioned my own experience. For like a few months, I was on the crew team at UC Berkeley Cal Bears. Wow. Wow. So you know, did we do a good job? Yeah. Great. They set us up to succeed. They gave us uh, the best of the best. And um, it's the closest I'll ever experience to being part of a professional sports team. It may look easy, but as Callum Turner says, rowing is really hard to learn. I took a lesson in Marina Del Rey with Coach Eva Botiva of iRow Fitness. She had briefly trained Joel Edgerton, who played the coach in the movie. I'm hoping the muscle memory comes back at least a little bit. Yeah, let's let's work okay. it out. The one advice I would give you is to give yourself time. Okay. okay. First step: so get in the boat. You're going to hold your handles here. Push the seat back. Botova had me in a single sculling boat, not an eight-person crew boat like in the movie, but the movements and the foundation are similar. She showed how to square and feather the oar, extending arms and legs, how to finish each stroke. Catch the water, push with the legs, pull the back, pull the arms. That was it. Push, push, push. Oh, that was a nice stroke. By the end of the lesson, I was rowing smoother and faster, but nowhere near the precision, speed, and strength of an Olympian. By the time they finished filming The Boys in the Boat, the actors were able to row like real champs. Here's Turner and Clooney again. We built up some sort of momentum. and The last eight days of the shoot yeah. were the race. Yeah. And uh, and they got it. And we, we managed to do it. And it, I remember <laughs> kind of similar to in the film when they're like, did we win? Did we win? We were like, did we do it? Did we do 46 yeah. strokes? And uh, we were in shock. We couldn't believe that we'd actually achieved the thing. And, and as you know, you know, there's like this, this bond that you make that's so special and it's unique to any other sport. Oh. George Clooney says he hopes that spirit of camaraderie makes The Boys in the Boat a feel-good movie for the holidays. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. This week, NPR's Rachel Martin is taking us inside some of our listeners' favorite holiday traditions. Today, it's about deciphering a mother's Christmas code. If you have been a kid waiting for Santa on Christmas Eve, you know how hard it is to resist checking under the tree just a little bit early. My older sister is a present peeker. Always has been, always will be. That's 32-year-old Samantha Helm. And growing up outside of Baltimore, she says it didn't take long for her mom to get wise about what was happening. So my mom stopped writing the names on, on the box and started writing little codes for herself on the back of the box. And they're originally really, really simple. Started with our initials. But Samantha's sister was undeterred. She cracked the code. So the following year, mom had to up her game. Then it was just numbers. You could tell it was birth order. But then they got a little bit more complicated. 
Samantha and her brother soon joined their sister in her sleuthing. Eventually, the rule became clear. Before they could open their gifts, the siblings all had to work together to decipher their mother's increasingly elaborate codes. She says her siblings fought about most things growing up, but when it came to deciphering their mom's Christmas gifts... Gosh, I don't know what it is, but it's some about this activity that we have, we've never fought over. Everyone's just very eager to always do it together. And over the years, she says her mom's codes have gotten even harder. She did names of lakes in Minnesota. My parents are, live in Minnesota now. And so we had to go get out um, like an almanac and we did some Googling and we figured out that they're the deepest, five deepest lakes. And so we, we put them in order of, of depth. And then we figured out it was the distance we each lived from our mother in order. Their mom's tradition has been going on for 20 years now. And this Christmas Eve, Samantha Helm and her siblings will be back in the living room inspecting their presents with notebooks and laptops, making spreadsheets and throwing out ideas until something finally clicks. That's NPR's Rachel Martin. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 745 on WBOR's Morning Edition, we talk to the last Coast Guard lighthouse keeper as she prepares to retire from her job on an island in Boston Harbor after two decades tending the oldest American lighthouse. It's 729. Come to City Space on January 4th for a conversation about redefining wellness with Dr. Pooja Lakshman, author of Real Self-Care. Tickets are at WBOR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Jose Mateo Ballet Theater. Rediscover the magic of the Nutcracker at the Strand in Dorchester. Now through the 24th, tickets from $25, BalletTheater.org. And the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash givemeals. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Colorado Supreme Court is banning former President Donald Trump from the state's presidential primary ballot in 2024. The ruling came in a 4-3 to three vote. In its decision, the state's highest court cited the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution in deciding Trump's actions ahead of the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol amounted to insurrection. Trump's Republican presidential campaign calls the ruling flawed and says it will appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Sean Grimsley is an attorney representing the plaintiffs. He's first going to have to convince the Supreme Court to take it. And once he convinces the Supreme Court to take it, I do think we have a good shot on the substance. Grimsley was speaking to CNN. The U.N. Security Council has yet to vote on a resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Negotiations to convince the U.S. not to veto the resolution have been ongoing. Linda Fasulo has more. The proposed resolution calls for the urgent suspension of hostilities to allow unhindered humanitarian access to Gaza and for urgent steps towards a sustainable cessation of hostilities. The draft demands that all hostages be released immediately and strongly condemns indiscriminate attacks and violence against civilians and all acts of terrorism. UN aid monitoring would be established. 
This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Teachers in Newton are casting a vote of no confidence in the city's mayor and school committee. The Newton Teachers Association says little progress has been made reaching a new union contract after over a year of bargaining. Teachers say they want better wages for support staff and more parental leave. Mayor Ruth Ann Fuller says the teachers have her full confidence and she looks forward to getting a contract funded. Newton's superintendent of schools says she's looking forward to getting the contract settled. Some Massachusetts cities and towns are pledging to start using tens of millions of dollars arriving from settlements with opioid makers and distributors. The first report on these funds shows municipalities have banked more than $51 million since July of 2022, but they haven't spent much. Springfield's deputy financial officer Lindsay Hackett says a new state accounting rule will help. We're going to be able to receipt these settlement funds directly into the opioid settlement fund account so we can track exactly what's coming in and exactly what's going out. The funds are supposed to be spent on efforts to curb substance use and overdose deaths. Some families are angry the funds sat in municipal accounts as Massachusetts recorded more overdose deaths than in any prior year. Massachusetts transportation officials say that more people are getting driver's licenses. That follows a new law that went into effect this past summer. It allows people to apply for a driver's license or learner's permit regardless of their immigration status. More than 140,000 people have gotten a license or learner's permit since that law went into effect. It's 733. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com The Bruins rallied late last night to send their game against the Minnesota Wild to overtime, but then they lost in OT. Their final at the Garden was 4-3. to The Bees' next game is Friday. The Celtics began a West Coast road trip last night with an overtime loss. They fell to the Golden State Warriors 132-126. The Seas will visit the Sacramento Kings tonight. Sunny today will have highs in the low 40s. Temperatures fall to the upper 20s tonight as a few clouds move in and the winds pick up. Sunny again tomorrow, but cooler with highs only in the mid-30s. It's 31 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at storyworth.com. From BritBox with Archie, based on the true story of Hollywood icon Cary Grant, a new original drama starring Jason Isaacs. Archie, now streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Our next story involves a royal prince, a Hollywood star, and the next publisher of the Washington Post. William Lewis was one of the most acclaimed newspaper editors in the United Kingdom, and later was publisher of the Wall Street Journal. NPR's David Folkenflik is reporting, however, that Lewis has been accused in court this year of helping to lead a major cover-up of scandals at Rupert Murdoch's tabloids. And David is with us now to tell us more. David, good morning. Hey, Michelle. So before we get to these allegations, would you just start by telling us a little bit about Will Lewis? 
Sure. He started as a reporter at uh, the Sunday Mail and quickly moved to the Financial Times, where he made a name for himself as an intrepid uh, reporter getting corporate scoops, then was hired by Rupert Murdoch's Sunday Times as its business editor for several years, and then moved on to The Telegraph, where he was hired one of the youngest editors in that newspaper's histories and uh, was really seen as a crusading, scoop-driven editor indeed. Uh, Caused incredible tumult in Parliament with some of their reporting there, uh, won awards uh, for them, and was hired once more by Rupert Murdoch, this time as an executive in the UK, took on a bunch of jobs, ultimately ended up leading Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal. All right. So tell us about the scandals involving those Murdoch tabloids. Right. So this goes back really more than a dozen years ago, where uh, it involved scandals of hacking into people's voicemails, uh, stealing their emails, violating their privacy, sometimes breaking into their homes and paying off police, as it turned out, for tips and also to look the other way. You know, this was kind of tolerated, not just in journalism, but by the British public when it involved the royals or politicians or celebrities or uh, sports stars. But when it turned out that a 13-year-old schoolgirl who had been murdered, that her voicemails had been hacked into, it caused an incredible national tumult. Uh, Murdoch ultimately shuts down the News of the World, which had been founded back in 1843 as a result of all this. People end up serving time. The Murdoch media empire ends up paying about $1.5 billion in settlements and fees since then. And among the people who have been most vocal about this, Prince Harry and Hugh Grant, they're in court right now because they allege that these cover-ups they're talking about prevented them from knowing that more things had happened to them from The Sun, a sister tabloid to the News of the World. Okay, so what are, but what are the allegations against Lewis? So he was brought on board by Murdoch to News Corp's British newspaper arm back in 2010 and was quickly uh, sort of seconded to help them with crisis management. He's accused by the lawyers for Prince Harry and for Hugh Grant of being involved in leading a mass deletion of millions of emails, of helping to hide two work computers for uh, Rebecca Brooks, who was the chief executive of the British newspaper arm for the Murdochs, of coming up with a fake story about why that was necessary to, to delete the emails or with hold the information from that chief executive and of misleading police. Has he responded to any of this? What does what does he have to say? Well, years ago, when these questions were first brought up with slightly less detail, Lewis broadly denied these claims, but he said nothing, no comment in response to our detailed requests for comment. It's worth noting he's not a defendant in these suits. And it's also worth noting that News Corp isn't saying anything other than pointing to the decision of the police not to prosecute the company. Okay, but why is this coming up now? It's coming up now because Prince Harry and Hugh Grant argued this very issue earlier this year in court. It was then echoed and amplified in another lawsuit that just was settled in recent days. And of course, there's the question of Will Lewis taking over the Washington Post, a paper renowned for Watergate, you know, casting light on misdeeds, a publication that has the slogan, democracy dies in darkness. And these are allegations about what Will Lewis did to please his corporate bosses, allegedly, behind closed doors when the stakes were highest. And the question of, you know, whether there's any merit to those allegations, I think, casts light on what people will think of Lewis as he steps into this important perch. So presumably you have asked the Post for comment. Have they said anything? So I asked uh, acting post-CEO Patty Stonecipher, who helped to select Lewis for the Post's owner, Jeff Bezos, and they declined to comment in response to our questions. We wanted to know, among other things, how they vetted this, what uh, due diligence they did to assure themselves there's no cause of concern there. That is NPR's David Fulkenflick. David, thank you so much. You bet. 
Strong winds and heavy rain that swept up the East Coast this week knocked out power, closed roads, and flooded parts of almost every state that touches the Atlantic Ocean. Emergencies were declared in some states. In Maine, where more than 400,000 people, more than a third of the state, were without electricity, they're still taking stock of the damage. Here's Maine Public Radio's Patty White. Public works crews were busy Tuesday morning in the central main city of Lewiston, using excavators to clear roads of down trees that fell amidst 60-mile-an-hour winds. Lewiston Public Works' Reggie Poussard called the damage from the storm extensive. I've seen a lot of storms. I would say this storm is an 8 out of 10 from, from what I've seen so far. Poussard says the biggest challenge for the city is the variety of issues they're managing. Clearing roads, fixing streetlights, repairing toppled signs, and managing downed wires. Residents also have plenty to deal with. Mike Brooks uses a chainsaw to carve apart a massive pine tree that crashed down onto his driveway during the storm, ripping down the power line to his house and blocking in his family's cars. The tree is roughly three feet in diameter, and it narrowly missed his neighbors on either side. Best place it could have hit. It could have hit his house, it could have went that way, could have taken us out, and landed in the best spot it could have. Even though Brooks lost power, he says he was prepared with battery backups, so his house has lights and heat. You know, all the food's on ice and coolers, and just take it from there. It's kind of like a little adventure, a little camping adventure. But other residents faced situations that were more dire. The heavy rain combined with melting snowpack from the western Maine mountains caused severe flooding in parts of the state. Sarah Breton of Lewiston watched the Androscoggin River swamp a car when a driver got stuck in front of her apartment. He almost got through the whole puddle and then his car died and he's been stu- he was stuck in there for about an hour. Some residents in Rumford had to be rescued from their homes due to flooding and a nursing home in Canton had to evacuate more than 90 residents to a local high school. Um, so this is definitely a top tier high impact event in terms of rainfall and flood damage across the area. National Weather Service meteorologist Derek Schroeder says the devastating storm is similar to one that hit Maine last December, and it comes after multiple heavy rainstorms during the summer. It's part of a trend identified in climate change models, he says, that fine precipitation in the Northeast is increasing, and the vast majority of it falls during intense storm events. For NPR News, I'm Patty White in Lewiston, Maine. Dismay and pain over the war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza has spilled over into the Israeli-occupied West Bank. So what will Christmas look like in the town of Bethlehem? Listen wherever you are, on your phone, your computer, your smart speaker, or on your reliable radio. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, a constitutional scholar breaks down the historic ruling by Colorado's high court barring Donald Trump from appearing on the state's 2024 primary ballot. Low 40s today under clear skies. Some gusty winds tonight as it falls to the upper 20s. Skies will be mostly clear. Cold tomorrow with temperatures only in the mid-30s but sunny. It's 31 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash first night. 
Google will pay Massachusetts more than $1 million to settle accusations it broke antitrust laws. The settlement is part of a lawsuit by attorneys general from all 50 states. They accuse the tech giant of driving up prices for digital transactions within apps downloaded from its Play Store. Consumers who were harmed by the practices are also eligible for restitution under the settlement. For its part, Google has not admitted to any wrongdoing. Comcast is requiring customers to reset their passwords. That's after hackers gained access to the personal information of nearly 36 million Xfinity customers. Comcast says it has not found evidence that data has been leaked anywhere. Congressman Stephen Lynch has a new plan to help more people earn their GED. His newly introduced bill would provide federal grants to organizations that provide GED prep and workforce training to people who did not complete high school. Lynch says the money would help expand in-person and virtual training offered by those organizations. It's 744. WBUR supporters include Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. And AAFCPAs, accounting, audit, tax, advisory, and wealth management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The last lighthouse keeper in the U.S. tends the Boston Light Beacon. It's on craggy Little Brewster Island in outer Boston Harbor. After two decades on the job, Sally Snowman plans to retire this month at age 72. Boston Light will be sold to a private owner who will be required to preserve the lighthouse. She and I spoke on land at the Hall Lifesaving Museum. Snowman wore one of the costumes she dons during tours on the island, made up of handmade clothing in the style of the 18th century when the lighthouse was built. Boston Light being the first established light station in colonial America, the reason why it's where it is, because that's the turning point. They have to miss Boston Light, or the island, to come into Boston. There's original logs to describe what some of the rescues were like and how many people they saved. That was before your time. So when you got there, it sounds like it was more about taking care of the grounds and the the lighthouse itself. Exactly. In fact, because it was totally automated in 1998, you didn't have to have anybody out there. The reason why it was staying manned was because there was a congressional law that said because it was the first established light station in colonial America, it shall remain manned. Once you got there, how did you adapt to life on the island? Because I thought it was only going to be a one and a half year to two year, I never wanted to get like settled into it. But every year that I was on the island, the, the heartstrings connected a little bit more. So it's bittersweet. I know that the transfer is going to happen. I was aware of that back in 2003. But will I miss it? Am I missing it? Yes. Climate change accelerated so much during the last 20 years. So what have you seen change in your time as keeper? The tides. We have more 13-foot tides than we did 29 years ago. We have storms. More and more storms are getting stronger. And that's why 2018 was my last time that I could live out there because of the damage that was done. 
I read about the erosion under the, the cliff that the lighthouse is on. Are you worried that the island itself is at risk? They've had different scientists come out to Little Booster Island to answer your question. And it's a mixed bag. And the thing is, for me, it's a crapshoot. Do you think something is lost when there isn't, you know, a traditional keeper on the island taking care of things? Not necessarily, because the Coast Guard's mission is to have all their lighthouses transferred. There's not-for-profit agencies that have taken them. Sometimes the state takes them. Another federal agency, like the Park Service, takes them. So there's a wide variety of contingencies out there that are so much better at maintaining these land sites and landmarks than the Coast Guard. But what about just the culture of keepers? You're the last one. I mean, there are books, there are movies, there are songs about being a lighthouse keeper. Are we going to lose something when the last lightkeeper retires? Well, these new owners are doing a fabulous job in maintaining them, and they're telling the story. And many of them will, will dress up in costume to tell that story. So what we're doing is just turning a new page. I believe we are all beacons of light. We are all lighthouses from our heart space. So for me to be out there for 20 years, my energy is going to be out there. It's there. Sally Snowman retires this month after two decades as the lighthouse keeper for Boston Light. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's a Wednesday morning on WBUR. Coming up at 8.20 on Morning Edition, a writer for our Ideas and Opinion page reflects on why watching the Muppets' A Christmas Carol remains her family's holiday tradition. It's 7.49. WBUR supporters include We Need a Vacation, with over 4,000 vacation rentals on the Cape and Islands, from large to small, luxurious to modest, for over 25 years. More at weneedavacation.com. WBUR has been reporting for months on the family shelter system here in Massachusetts. It's bursting at the seams. During the course of our reporting, it's moved from a low simmer to a boil, and it shows no signs of relenting. I'm Gabriela Emanuel. This kind of in-depth reporting takes investment. Make a year-end contribution at WBUR.org. And thank you. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Former President Donald Trump says he plans to appeal the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to keep him off the state's primary ballot, sending the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. The leader of Hamas is in Egypt today to join talks on another possible ceasefire in Gaza. And a Georgia judge is considering whether the Voting Rights Act protects districts where several minority groups together make up a majority. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new Martin acoustic guitars, because every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. 
Lots of sun today, along with temperatures in the low 40s. It'll grow a bit windy tonight as it drops into the upper 20s and a few clouds move in. Sunny tomorrow in the mid-30s. It's 31 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. While China's economic recovery struggles to gain momentum, government statistics indicate that businesses and households are moving money overseas at the fastest rate in seven years. For this week's NPR China series, our correspondent Anthony Kuhn went to Tokyo, where he met some middle-class Chinese citizens who are choosing to move their money and families not to the U.S., but to Japan. For one former Beijing-based journalist, immigration went from being a story he researched to one he lived himself. He made the move to Japan last year. He wants to protect families still in China, so he asked that his name and voice not be used. In China, he used to move in elite circles. His successful and affluent friends were often cheerleaders for Chinese government policies until strict COVID lockdowns trapped them in their homes. Here's what he says in Chinese. They discovered their advanced degrees, money, and connections could not help them with their most basic travel and living needs. And it was a big blow to them. And that's why some of these friends joined the exodus from China. Last year, one of China's most popular buzzwords was runology, a pun referring to the art and science of emigrating. This year, China's middle class still has plenty of reasons to vote with their feet. A government crackdown on tycoons, a faltering real estate sector, and geopolitical jousting with the U.S. But the journalist says that for people like himself, it basically boils down to three things. He says in Chinese, One is your children's education and medical care. The other is the long-term safety of your family's assets. And for people in the fields of culture and media, there's another demand which is freedom of thought and speech. He says that moving to Japan emboldened some Chinese to criticize their government. Others like himself, though, are more careful, he says, because authorities sometimes pressure their relatives in China to pressure them to keep quiet. Of course, he says there are workarounds, for example. He says in Chinese, If you write a letter to your mother stating that you've severed relations with her and she gives that to the police, then they may stop bothering her. Some worried parents won't resort to this workaround, he adds, even if it's just a tactic to get the authorities off their backs. China's government tries to prevent capital flight by limiting how much money citizens can take out of the country. But many of those who do manage to get their money out are investing in Japanese real estate. A Chinese consultant surnamed Liu, who advises Chinese investing in Japan, says her clients prefer to buy homes in Tokyo's posh apartment towers. She asked that we only use her last name because immigration is now a sensitive issue in China. In Tokyo, I advise them to purchase property near subway stations or those which have a view of Tokyo Tower because I'm sure their price won't go down. Of course, Chinese have been emigrating, sojourning and going into exile in Japan for a long time. They include people like statesman Sun Yat-sen. In the early 1900s, Sun organized a revolutionary party based in Japan that overthrew the last Chinese imperial dynasty. Tokyo University China expert Akio Takahara explains. A hundred years ago, uh, all those revolutionaries came to Japan and uh, found Japan as a good base, as it were, to prepare for the political change. Uh, And it is possible that Japan 
will play some kind of a role uh, similar to that in the future. Conditions for that are not ripe now, he says, but Chinese can still inject some much-needed vitality into Japan's aging and shrinking workforce. To make that work, Takahata says, both sides need to adapt to each other. Japanese will have to find a way to coexist in a peaceful and uh, comfortable way. Uh, so that is going to be a challenge to the Japanese society. And he says Japan will have to manage risks, such as immigrants driving up real estate prices or even working as agents of China's government. Still, Japan continues to be attractive to immigrants from China, partly because they're bound together, not just by geography, but also by shared cultural traditions. You can see that at the One-Way Street Bookstore in Tokyo's Ginza District, where people come to read and buy books and listen to lectures in Chinese. Bookstores in mainland China used to hold symposia like these, where ideas and current events were debated, but in the current political environment, that's no longer possible. One of the speakers is Huang, a professor of architecture at Tokyo University. He explains what brought him to settle in Japan. In Kyoto, you can see the graceful architectural style of Tang and Song Dynasty China. It's preserved in some places in China, but the place to find traditional Chinese culture preserved in a systematic and complete way is actually in Japan. Hu studied in the U.S. and taught at Oxford. But he says it was not until he came to Japan that he felt he returned to his cultural roots. When you see so many beautiful gardens and traditional architecture, it helps you to see your cultural lineage clearly. And slowly, the feeling of recognizing your mother culture comes to you. And that sense of belonging could make the difference between a feeling of going into exile or emigrating or coming home. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Tokyo. In the mid-1930s, the Civilian Conservation Corps installed a network of telephone lines in the Grand Canyon along the Colorado River. It was this huge, ambitious undertaking. Nearly a hundred years later, park ranger Betsy Arno is tearing down 18 miles of wires because they're a hazard for search and rescue helicopters. But her attention at first was not on the sky, it was on the ground. Because a bighorn ram got caught in some wires on the Bright Angel Trail, and he died, he strangled in the wires. So Arno started picking up fallen wires. And they're just strewn across the ground. They're tangled in the vegetation. They're dangling from poles. Arno uses bolt cutters to snip wires from the telephone poles. It was really dramatic. You know, the wire makes this great, like, whooshing and zinging sound as it goes. For pilots, that's the sound of safety. Jeremiah Boyd is an aviation officer for Grand Canyon National Park. Just knowing that we don't have to worry about wires in that area, and it allows the pilots to be able to adapt and get into some of those areas where the wires were much more easily. And her unique job assignment is also improving the views. It is really nice to see just nature, just the sky. Arno's work is being honored with the prestigious Wright Brothers National Aviation Safety Award from the National Park Service. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. 
Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. I'm Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Former President Donald Trump says he'll appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court after Colorado bars him from its 2024 primary ballot. It's Wednesday, December 20th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, more on the decision by Colorado's high court. It ruled that Trump cannot be president again because he engaged in an insurrection. The justices did seem very aware of the gravity of this decision. They wrote that they do not reach these conclusions lightly. Also this hour, a judge in Georgia is considering whether the Voting Rights Act protects districts where multiple minority groups together make up a majority. We're seeing an increasingly multiracial democracy that the voting rights law that we have wasn't really built to handle. Plus, California has adopted rules that will allow sewage to be transformed into drinking water. Sunny in the 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Colorado Supreme Court has ruled that former President Donald Trump is disqualified from appearing on the state's Republican primary ballot next year. Colorado Public Radio's Benta Berkland reports that's for engaging in an insurrection on January 6th. This is the first time a Civil War era clause in the Constitution designed to keep former Confederates from returning to government has been successfully invoked against a presidential candidate. The majority on the court said they didn't reach these conclusions lightly and would not be swayed by public reaction. The dissenting justices said Colorado lacks the authority to decide this case and that Trump would be denied due process since he hasn't been convicted of engaging in an insurrection. The campaign for former President Trump called the ruling flawed and said they will appeal to the United States Supreme Court. Colorado's primary ballots must be finalized January 5th. If an appeal to the high court is pending, his name will appear on the ballot awaiting a final decision. For NPR News, I'm Benta Berkland in Colorado. President Biden is heading to the battleground state of Wisconsin today. He will promote his administration's agenda on supporting small businesses. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports the president's visit will highlight his economic agenda and its effect on black and brown Americans. Biden will visit the Wisconsin Black Chamber of Commerce while in Milwaukee. The White House says black business ownership in the U.S. is growing at its fastest pace in 30 years. The event will focus on Biden's economic agenda, which the White House has been trying to sell to voters around the country, as polling shows many Americans are dissatisfied with how the president is handling the economy. Biden will also go after Republicans like Senator Ron Johnson, who has repeatedly voted against major pieces of Biden's agenda. 
Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. A vote may be held today in the U.N. Security Council. It calls for a halt to fighting in Gaza to allow humanitarian aid to reach Palestinians. A vote has been delayed on the resolution as diplomats try to find language the U.S. will not veto. Some military ships are starting to sail in the Red Sea as part of an international protection task force. They're watching for drones and missiles fired by Houthi rebels from Yemen at commercial ships. NPR's Tom Bowman says the Biden administration is being urged to strike sites in Yemen that Houthi rebels use to fire into the Red Sea. The U.S. could strike the drone and missile launch sites on land in Yemen. Some Republican lawmakers have called for that, but the administration doesn't want to widen the Israeli-Gaza war into a regional conflict. Of course, the reason the Houthis are mounting the attacks on commercial shipping is to show support for the Hamas fighters in Gaza. Both the Houthis and Hamas get support from Iran. NPR's Tom Bowman reporting. This is NPR News. From WBMR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston's black communities will receive a formal apology this morning for the harm they received during the investigation of a 1989 murder case. Mayor Michelle Wu says that'll include personal apologies to Alan Swanson and Willie Bennett. The two men were wrongfully arrested when Charles Stewart falsely accused a black man of killing his pregnant wife in Mission Hill. It was later revealed that Stewart himself orchestrated the shooting. The accusations resulted in racist harassment of black men in Boston by city officials and the Boston Police Department. Governor Healy will testify today on behalf of her first pick for the state's highest court. Last week, she nominated Bessie Dewar to the Supreme Judicial Court. Dewar currently serves as state solicitor. Healy picked her to replace Elspeth Cipher. She's scheduled to retire next month. Healy has not yet announced her pick to replace Justice David Lowy. He's leaving the court in February. One of the nation's largest for-profit hospital networks is facing allegations that it defrauded the federal Medicare program. Prosecutors say Stewart Healthcare improperly compensated one of its top surgeons in Boston. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey has more. In a lawsuit, the Massachusetts U.S. attorney alleges that Stewart paid Dr. Arvind Agnihotri to boost the cardiac surgery business at St. Elizabeth's Medical Center in Brighton. It claims that over a decade, the surgeon received almost $5 million in incentive payments on top of his base salary. Prosecutors say Stewart knowingly violated the federal Stark Law, which forbids incentive payments that could affect a doctor's decision-making. They say Stewart's leaders ignored or yelled at employees who raised concerns about the payments. Stewart officials deny the allegations and say they want the lawsuit dismissed. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. The annual gingerbread competition at the Boston Society for Architecture is underway. The competition features gingerbread houses that are a bit more complicated than your average cookie cabin. This year's theme is Transit, Boston on the Move. Maya Erslev is in charge of the competition. They say the decision to choose a theme around transit was intentional. We thought we could take this kind of frustrating challenge for for Boston commuters and turn it into a more festive and and exciting way to to rethink and reimagine Boston transit through the form of, of gingerbread and other edible fancies. The exhibit will be on display through tomorrow. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, supporting local charities during the Share the Love event. 
Learn more at MetroWestSubaru.com. The Celtics' five-game losing streak ended last night in San Francisco. They lost to the Warriors 132-126 to in overtime. The Seas will visit the Sacramento Kings tonight. The Bruins lost in overtime at the Garden. They fell to the Minnesota Wild 4-3. to The Bees' next game is Friday on the road against the Winnipeg Jets. Sunny today, it'll be in the low to mid-40s. Clear overnight with temperatures in the 20s. Sunny tomorrow in the mid-30s. It's 31 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lodestar Foundation. Inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. A state court wants to bar Donald Trump from the presidential primary ballot in Colorado because of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. In a 4-3 decision, Colorado's highest court found that Trump engaged in insurrection. And it ruled that under a clause in the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, he is disqualified from holding office again. Back with us now to discuss the historic decision is Kim Whaley. She's a constitutional law scholar at the University of Baltimore. Kim, you're one of the first to raise the possibility that that Trump's presidential run could be restrained under the 14th Amendment. Walk us through how that's being used now in Colorado. Well, as you indicated, the Section 5 states, excuse me, Section 3, that if you've taken an oath of office and engaged in an insurrection or rebellion, you can't hold it again. The issue is that there is no cause of action that's been enacted by the United States Congress. That is, there's, there's no sort of legal hook that connects the 14th Amendment with a court case. It's just sitting out there. And so uh, litigants are going state by state across the country, including in Colorado, and using the state law, an election law here in the state of Colorado, to say uh, Trump, by virtue of the 14th Amendment, is disqualified under the Colorado law. The lower court held a, an evidentiary hearing and said, yes, he engaged in insurrection and rebellion, but kind of parsed the language to say presidents aren't officers within the meaning of the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court in that split decision, the majority said, no, um, officer is associated with president 25 other times in the Constitution. That's not a persuasive argument just from the plain language. So he, he does qualify under the Constitution as, as disqualified, and therefore the Secretary of State cannot put him on the ballot in the state of Colorado. Considering, though, he has not been charged with engaging in insurrection, how does that apply in the in the Colorado case? Well, there's nothing in the that part of the Constitution that requires a criminal conviction. Um, I think the, the judge did her own analysis using the evidence that was presented to her, like happens under all kinds of different laws, to make a determination that the facts fit the, the particular definition. There is a criminal statute for insurrection floating out there um, that was not charged in the January 6th case by Jack Smith. And one of the dissenting justices in Colorado says, you know, if you're going to if you're going to come up with a definition of insurrection, it has to be through that statute. But there's nowhere in the law that requires that. And arguably, even the January 6th committee's careful, longstanding, you know, hearings on this um, and its long report could constitute that ruling. There's there's no mandate anywhere that the definition has to be translated and applied by virtue of a criminal jury trial. That's that's really just an argument to narrow the scope. It's not it's not ostensibly required on the Constitution and the history of the Constitution, this provision of the Constitution. So now that Colorado dipped their toe in the water here, could other states follow? 
Yeah, so other states already have. I mean, these cases are going on on various places, but it's the first place where um, a court found that he was uh, unqualified or could not be on the ballot. Um, in Minnesota, the the court looked at at Minnesota law and said, you know, actually, political parties get to decide. There isn't this this link between um, this constitution and being on the ballot. Um, Michigan, the court held, well, Congress has to decide. Uh, New Mexico court held that another person who engaged in insurrection could not be on the ballot. So, so this is all percolating based on the state law that would be the consequence of him qualifying under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Um, but there is no definitive ruling on the meaning of insurrection uh, engage or officer. Although I think at this point, um, it, it, any court would be hard pressed to find that 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 January sixth was not an interaction and, and that Donald Trump didn't engage in it. So I don't think that's the strongest argument on the facts. It's really a technical argument that the process should be more rigorous yeah. before uh, a court comes to that conclusion. Is this going to wind up in the Supreme Court? I know Trump uh, says he's going to appeal. Yeah, well, uh, you know, there. This would now be the third of these huge cases. Sure, they're going to take it very, very seriously, um, because it has constitutional implications not just for this election but for future elections. And I think there should be an incentive along the way um, to say to would-be presidents, listen, don't do what happened on January sixth. There'll be there'll be consequences for it. But um, we're in a politicized world, and we have a arguably a politicized Supreme Court. So speaking of that, Kim, considering, as you said, we are in a politicized world, is there no way around it that whatever the Supreme Court decides to do here, it's going to be seen as a political decision? Well, by some for sure. I mean, think about 2000 and Bush versus Gore when the court stepped in to basically stop Florida from doing its job under Florida law on um, that that did hurt the legitimacy of the court and many people thought it was political um but here you know there are ways to make it less political certainly if they step in and a split decision hold and through some sort of threading the needle that a president cannot be accountable under the 14th amendment that will be very political and if it's as i said if it's not unanimous that's yeah. would be very damaging um the court could just say listen this is this is federalism yeah. this is really about states doing this their thing under state law and so we're just going to wait it out kim thank you very much that's kim whaley constitutional law scholar at the university of baltimore thanks you're welcome Israel's military continues to launch ground and air assaults in Gaza, including in and around the southern city of Rafah. That's where hundreds of thousands of civilians have fled seeking safety. As the death toll nears 20,000, according to Gaza's health ministry, Israel is coming under intense international pressure to limit further civilian casualties. Among the Palestinians killed yesterday in the aerial campaign was another journalist. Dozens of journalists have been killed in Gaza, according to media advocates. So let's go now to NPR's Kerry Khan, who is in Tel Aviv. Kerry Good morning. Thanks for having me. So there is no let up in Israel's aerial campaign in Gaza. There was a communications blackout for several days. That's ongoing in some places. Could you start by bringing us up to date on the situation now? Bombing was heavy yesterday, especially in the north, and that's according to the UN. In the early morning hours, several homes in Rafah were struck, killing at least 30 people, including a three-year-old and a journalist, according to the Associated Press. NPR's producer, Anas Baba, who is in Rafah, was able to send us interviews and photos of the bombed residences. He spoke with the survivor of the attack, Fawad Elada, who described waking up at 1 a.m. when the rubble fell on him. 
He says he shot up, not knowing who to save, himself or his family, and he's he's in despair, and he just says, this is not a solution. Palestinian armed groups continue to fire rockets into Israel from Gaza, and according to the Israeli uh, military, Hezbollah strikes into northern Israel from Lebanon continue also. So what are you hearing about the possibility of another ceasefire and an exchange of hostages and prisoners? There have been meetings with U.S. backing between Israeli and Qatari officials in Europe about a ceasefire and a deal to release hostages. That's according to U.S. officials. More than 100 of the people abducted in Israel during Hamas's October 7 attack are still believed to remain captive in Gaza. Uh, Israel's president, Isaac Herzog, says Israel is always open to negotiations. He was interviewed at an Atlantic Council event by NPR's Mary Louise Kelly. Uh, her usually doesn't weigh into politics, but I just want to play you uh, one part of that interview where Mary Louise asked him about Israel's assault in Gaza. He says, don't believe everything you see on social media. I say that information coming out of Gaza usually is uh, incorrect to say the least. It's a dire situation in Gaza. It's extremely painful. But what, what, what else can we do? Aid groups are increasingly worried about deteriorating infrastructure in Gaza. A UNICEF today released a report saying sanitation and water services are at the point of collapse there. So, so the UN Security Council is talking about that, especially the, the question of aid for the people there. Why, why has it been so difficult? They've been trying to get a resolution for a couple of days, and uh, they will try again today. They're working on language to avoid another U.S. veto. Uh, the U.S. in the past has opposed language on a cessation of hostilities and has concerns about the U.N. being in charge of monitoring of aid coming into Gaza. According to the U.N., only a fraction of what's needed for Gaza's more than 2 million residents is getting in at this time. That is NPR's Carrie Kant from Tel Aviv. Carrie, thank you. You're welcome. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a judge in Georgia is weighing whether new district maps still violate the Voting Rights Act. A key issue is whether a coalition of minorities can together be considered a majority in a district. It's 817. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. WBUR supporters include Babson College, where an MBA or specialized master's equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. Gain the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal. Babson.edu slash grad programs. I'm Thipa Fernandez. Sleeping at last, singer-songwriter Ryan O'Neill loves to record holiday music. It was just this fun tradition. I'm like, oh, instead of a Christmas card, maybe it would be fun to record a Christmas song or um, a holiday song. His new collection, next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR.
Welcome to City Space on January 4th for a conversation about redefining wellness with Dr. Pooja Lakshman, author of Real Self Care. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. Clear skies and highs in the low 40s today. A few clouds move in tonight as it falls to the upper 20s. It might also get a bit windy. Tomorrow, sunny and highs only in the mid-30s. It's 31 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash givemeals. A former church in Northeast Ohio is home to what's believed to be the world's largest privately owned collection of Christmas movie memorabilia. It is a place where visitors can see the Santa costume from Miracle on 34th Street and the snowman from Christmas with the Cranks and much more. The Ohio newsroom's Kendall Crawford takes us there. From the outside, Casa Noel looks like a typical church in small-town Ohio. But walk through the entryway, shout the magic words, and the doors to a whole other world open. Merry Christmas! Welcome to the Grand Hall of Castle Noel. In the foyer, larger-than-life Christmas toys sit by a 24-foot tree. A sleigh of stolen presents from the 2000 film The Grinch stretches towards the ceiling. And the people inside the former church worship a more secular figure these days. I have been called Santa Claus since I was a little kid. That's Mark Claus, no relation to Santa. He and his wife, Dana, are behind this 40,000-square-foot celebration of Christmas, where rooms are filled to the brim with vintage toys, holiday window displays, and, of course, iconic movie memorabilia. Claus has been donning a red suit to spread Christmas cheer since he was in elementary school. Now that he's old enough to have a long white beard to frame his rosy cheeks, the resemblance is uncanny. He says Casa Noel is just an extension of his family's tradition of going over the top for the holidays. We always had a 16-foot-tall Christmas tree and all this amazing scenery in our house that my mom and dad would put together. And the place was just spectacular. And people would come from everywhere to see it. Claus is an artist by trade. Collecting Christmas memorabilia came later. He began with just a few props from the Grinch. Now he's filled the building and two storage units with trinkets of Christmas history. Girls and boys, ready to see some toys? Yeah! All right, follow me. The tour starts in Santa's mailroom, where a conveyor belt collects kids' Christmas letters. You make your way through animatronic art acting out the Nutcracker, and every room holds a new holiday movie treasure. We have items from Santa Claus 1, 2, and 3 right here. We have the soldiers that took over the castle and now watch over our castle. The 10-foot naughty mace globe from Santa Claus 2 and 3. For Dana and Mark Claus, the joy isn't just in collecting scraps of Christmas scenes. It's in sharing them. Claus says Christmas movies are the heart of so many family traditions. And when people see a prop from their favorite scene, the excitement of the moment melts everything else away. 
to me, it's a, it's a big responsibility to make the impact so overwhelming that I can get you to disconnect from whatever's going on in your life, at least for that two hours. And Klaus understands that the holidays aren't easy for everyone. He lost his mother on Christmas Eve when he was 16. It's part of why he's worked so hard to make the holiday special for other people. For me, it was very difficult to do Christmas. So I'm really great at giving Christmas. And he is. From the Christmas cuckoo clock, to the singing penguins, to the grand finale. A trip down a reconstruction of the long red slide from a Christmas story. People will say, must be great for the kids. And I'll be like, no, what's really great is that somebody who's 80 years old goes down the slide, slide laughing hysterically, that I could turn them into a kid. Dream come true. That's exactly what Claus hopes Castle Noel will do. Make Christmas dreams come true. For NPR News, I'm Kendall Crawford in Medina, Ohio. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Most of us have some kind of holiday tradition, whether it involves gifts, food, traveling, or even entertainment. For WBUR editor Sarah Shukla, one holiday tradition involves the Muppets, specifically their film adaptation of Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol. She explains why. I think the first thing to know about the Muppet Christmas Carol is how perfectly it was cast. I give it a 10 out of 10, no notes. Kermit the Frog, ever the voice of reason and patience, is a natural Bob Cratchit. Michael Caine, yes, the Michael Caine, as Scrooge, lends the story gravitas. And Gonzo's narration as Charles Dickens delivers. From he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge, to tiny Tim, who did not die, that's all Dickens, straight from the original text. There goes Mr. Humbug, there goes Mr. Grimm. Brian Henson made the film when he was just 28. His dad, Jim Henson, who created The Muppets, had died two years earlier. It was Brian's first time directing, and in his own words, he was terrified. But he decided to do things a little differently than the usual Muppets approach by leaning into the darker elements of Dickens' text. Then he asked Paul Williams, who'd lost a decade to alcoholism and addiction, to return to the Muppet family to write some of the film's most beloved songs about love and redemption. The result is an enduring interplay of light and dark. You see it in Michael Caine playing Scrooge as if he's in a Shakespeare production. I know how to treat the poor. My taxes go to pay for the prisons and the poor houses. The homeless must go there. But some would rather die. If they'd rather die, then they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. Oh, dear, oh, dear. And in Kermit, reminding the Cratchit family, and us, of one of life's inevitable truths. It's all right, children. Life is made up of meetings and partings. That is the way of it. I am sure we shall never forget Tiny Tim or this first parting that there was among us. I loved this version of A Christmas Carol when I was a kid, precisely because it scared me, just a little. When the door knocker morphs into Marley's face and he moans, shivers. Jacob Marley. My six-year-old always snuggles in closer at that part. Then we laugh as Marley and Marley appear and sing their foreboding duet. True, 
There was something about mankind we loved. I think it was their money. <laughs> Doom Scrooge, you're doomed for all time. Your future is a horror story written by your crime. After spending many a Christmas Eve with Kermit and Gonzo, I've been thinking a lot about how life can change overnight. In some ways, the world my kids are growing up in seems as unimaginable as being visited by three spirits. I don't always know how to explain it all to them. If I'm being honest, it feels like I'm still finding my own way around in the dark a little bit. But I think what the Muppets are saying is, that's okay too. Are you the spirit whose coming was foretold to me? I am. But you're just a child. I can remember nearly 1,900 years. I'm the ghost of Christmas past. What business has brought you here? In the film's final song, Thankful Heart, the lyrics talk about how life is precious. The Muppets don't shy away from the dark places life inevitably takes us. And so the ending of the film is resoundingly joyous. Maybe that's how we should all try to walk into the new year, with a thankful heart. With a thankful heart, with an endless joy, with a growing family, every girl and boy will be nephew and niece to me. Nephew and niece to me. We'll bring love, hope, and peace to me. Sarah Shukla is a writer and editor for WBUR's Ideas and Opinion page. Read her essay and many others at WBUR.org. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 845 on Morning Edition, we'll learn about the patent dispute that has Apple taking its latest smartwatches off the shelves. It's 828. Road trips this holiday season mean you've got time to listen. Catch your favorite WBUR and NPR shows live or rewind and play them back with your WBUR app. Download it for free before you hit the road. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. From the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org slash cars. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. In a 4-3 decision, Colorado's Supreme Court is banning former President Donald Trump from appearing on the state's presidential primary ballot in 2024. The court says Trump's actions ahead of the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol amounted to insurrection. 
The state's highest court cites the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution in ruling Trump is ineligible to serve as president again. The Trump campaign calls that decision flawed and says it will appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Some of Trump's GOP campaign rivals were asked about the ruling. Here's former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who's been a vocal critic of Trump. I do not believe Donald Trump should be prevented from being president of the United States by any court. I think he should be prevented from being president of the United States by the voters of this country. Christie was speaking in Bedford, New Hampshire. NPR's Kerry Kahn says the U.N. Security Council has yet to vote on a resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. They're working on language to avoid another U.S. veto. The U.S. in the past has opposed language on a cessation of hostilities and has concerns about the U.N. being in charge of monitoring of aid coming into Gaza. According to the U.N., only a fraction of what's needed for Gaza's more than 2 million residents is getting in at this time. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. MIT is joining a list of schools being investigated by federal officials for alleged discrimination. Harvard and Wellesley are also on that list. The investigation follows complaints of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia on school campuses related to the attacks in Israel and Gaza. MIT has not commented on the investigation. An airman from western Massachusetts will be laid to rest today. Air Force Staff Sergeant Jacob Gallagher died last month off the coast of Japan. Eight people were killed when their aircraft crashed during a training mission. Gallagher was 24 years old and grew up in Pittsfield. He'll be buried in nearby Dalton. Some of Massachusetts's hotel shelters for migrants are set to close in the next couple of weeks. State officials say that's so they can consolidate resources to better meet the needs of those families. Around 800 people will be moved from hotels in Woburn, Arlington, and Billerica. It's unclear where they'll be relocated to. Critics of the plan tell the Boston Globe the relocation will cause instability for school-aged children and individuals looking for jobs. The country's last lighthouse keeper is set to retire at the end of the year. Sally Snowman has been keeper of the Boston Light on Little Brewster Island for the past two decades. But now the Coast Guard is looking for a new owner to take it over since the lighthouse is fully automated. Snowman says she'll miss the job, but she understands it's time for a change, and she hopes to be back to visit. I've already said to the Park Service, well, when they resume, just give me a Park Service volunteer cap. (laughs) and put me on the boat, and I'll just be Sally. I don't have to be out there as any, you know, anyone special. I'd be just out there sharing the history. Snowman says her retirement will give her more time to focus on her spiritual practices. It's 833. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Bruins lost their third straight overtime game last night. They fell to the Minnesota Wild 4-3 at the Garden. The Bees are now off until Friday. The Celtics also lost in overtime. The final in San Francisco last night was Warriors 132, Celtics 126. The Seas will visit the Sacramento Kings tonight. Sunny today will have highs in the low 40s. Temperatures fall to the upper 20s tonight as a few clouds move in and the winds pick up. Sunny again tomorrow but cooler with highs only in the mid-30s. It's 32 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation. 
working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Apple has lost a patent dispute, and tomorrow it plans to stop the online purchases of two of its newest smartphone watches. The medical device company Massimo, which also makes fitness trackers, says Apple illegally copied the technology behind its blood oxygen sensor. Apple, though, disputes that, but the U.S. International Trade Commission ruled against the company. All right, we're going to ask Philip Elmer DeWitt what it all means for customers. He has been covering Apple for four decades. Philip, it's been a long-running legal battle between the two. First, federal court and then the International Trade Commission. How did Massimo make uh, its case? Well, they tell a, a pretty, uh, an embarrassing story about Apple, uh, that Apple reached out to them, uh, signed their non-disclosure agreement, saw their technology, and then promptly hired 25 of their people, including their top executives, and patented something that looks very much, enough was different enough from Massimo's patent to get past the uh, the patent office. So then why is Apple pulling its product off the shelves, considering that the formal review period for the ITC ruling is over, or not even over yet, actually? The ITC gave them 90 days to do something about the problem, and that expires on Christmas Eve. President uh, Biden has until until Christmas Eve to intercede. What Apple has done is pull the products off the shelves and and off their store just before that expires. And what they've actually done is created an artificial shortage so that if you wanted to buy one of these for Christmas, you better get out there and buy it before midnight tomorrow online or or Christmas Eve if you want to get it. So what they've done is taken a, a patent ruling against them and turned it into a marketing opportunity. Right. It's becoming more desirable. I think people are probably, you know, crushing all the stores to try and get at this watch if they if they really want it. Um, you know, wondering, Philip, when it comes to something like this, like the blood oxygen sensor, I mean, how does how does Apple determine what kind of features and things go into, say, a, a smartwatch? Uh, is it because people clamor for it or is it because they feel that, uh, OK, this is what the, the new product needs? I don't think people were clamoring for this, although it's a useful uh, feature because, you know, if your blood oxygen falls too low, your lips turn blue and you you fall over. It's how the oxygen gets from the lungs to the, the heart, uh, to the rest of the body. But they're selling the Apple Watch as a health device. And uh, this is just another feature that makes it stickier. Uh, if you If you like the watch, you'll probably buy other Apple products. And, and when it comes to Massimo, their product, is it better than, as, in terms of what it would purports to do than what Apple has for their product? They, they claim that it is better, and it sounds like it is, because what theirs is a continuous blood oxygen measure. So if, uh, if your oxygen falls low, it'll alert you. Whereas Apple, you'd have to actually go out and ask the watch, how your, how's your oxygen doing? On the other hand, Massimo doesn't have a smartwatch on the market yet that, that includes mm. this. They have a a tracking device that does, but they're hoping to market a watch with this next year, uh, but they don't have a distribution network. Apple really owns okay. the smartwatch market right now. 
That's longtime Apple watcher Philip Elmer DeWitt. He blogs at Apple 3.0. Philip, thanks. Thank you very much. And food. Buenas tardes. ¿Me puede dar un café con leche, por favor? Lopez Romero says black, Latino, and Asian Americans together make this a Democratic stronghold. But the GOP is peeling away some Latino and Asian American voters. That could make it harder for the courts to see these groups as politically cohesive, potentially threatening their protections as a coalition under the Voting Rights Act. Lopez Romero says any movement away from Democrats is minor. It's quite frankly not significant. The part about coalitions being of similar interest is not the same as asking us to be the same. Attracting new voters is a necessity for Republicans as Georgia's white population shrinks. But Ray Harvin with the Democratic Gwinnett County African American Caucus says Republicans are also wielding redistricting to preserve their majorities. Georgia is in the game and in the future as this coalition of voters grow We're going to have this fight over and over again. The outcome may shape not only which party controls the next Congress, but also the future of the Voting Rights Act itself. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Norcross, Georgia. California has just adopted rules that will eventually let agencies convert wastewater directly into drinking water that'll come out of the tap. As KQED's Ezra David Romero reports, scientists believe the treated water could be as clean as bottled water. Once soiled water swirls down the drain or toilet and reaches a wastewater plant, it goes through a litany of treatments. It is beat up a lot. Lakeisha Bryant works at a wastewater purification plant in San Jose, California. The Santa Clara Valley Water District strains the water and forces it through tiny tubes, pipes, and filters. Then it hits it with ultraviolet light. It goes in and it goes out to get it where we would like it to be. Also the same technology used in desalinating water. Currently, the agency cleans water for things like watering grass or firefighting. But in the future, they would like to purify the sewage water for human consumption. That's called direct potable reuse. This week, the California State Water Resources Control Board approved statewide guidelines for this process. Kirsten Struve is the assistant officer for Valley Water's Water Supply Division. It would give us another option in our portfolio to make sure that we have water in the face of the climate crisis. Her water district plans to build a demonstration facility that will cost as much as $50 million by 2025. They want to convince the public that this water is safe to drink. There is a majority of people in our county who are very comfortable with potable reuse, but there's 30% who are not. The new rules mean that agencies must ultra-purify the water with treatments like hydrogen peroxide and rigorously test it. Stanford University environmental engineer William Mitch has studied this water and says it's safe to drink. If you compare it side by side with what you're already happy, conventional tap water, it can have comparable or even higher quality because of the extensive treatment. As droughts become more frequent, UC Berkeley environmental engineer David Sedlak said the need to recycle wastewater only grows. He says Texas and Colorado have been more aggressive with water recycling because they lack alternative water sources. Arizona and New Mexico could be next. 
California is certainly not the first and won't be the only place in the United States where direct potable reuse is on the table. California's decision doesn't mean water districts can immediately add on to their treatment plants. State agencies will need to weigh in, and districts will need to figure out what to do with the salty byproducts of the purification process. The rules could go into effect this summer, unleashing a new era of water in California. For NPR News, I'm Ezra David Romero in San Francisco. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us what's driving the rising cost of all the sweets you're enjoying this holiday season. And when it comes to actual driving in the holidays, AAA estimates 104 million Americans will drive somewhere for the holiday. That's up 2 percent from last year. For our area, it predicts the worst traffic will be on Saturday afternoon, with the worst slowdowns on Interstate 95 between Boston and New Hampshire. Low 40s today under clear skies. Some gusty winds tonight as it falls to the upper 20s. Skies will be mostly clear. Cold tomorrow with temperatures only in the mid-30s, but it'll be sunny. It's 32 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Canyon Ranch Lennox, the all-inclusive wellness resort in the Berkshires. Spa, fitness, gourmet cuisine, and restoration for the holidays and the new year. Wellness and relaxation, a three-hour drive from Boston. Learn more at canyonranch.com. That's canyonranch.com. The number of flights in and out of Logan Airport remains below pre-pandemic levels. That's according to federal flight data obtained by the Boston Business Journal. It shows traffic at Logan is down 11 percent compared to this time in 2019. Only six other airports lost more flights than Logan since then. Boston-based Light Matter is the latest company in the state to reach so-called unicorn status. That means it's now valued at more than $1 billion. The chip developer reached the status after securing an additional $155 million in funding. The company says it plans to use the money to grow its computing power and continue its development of artificial intelligence. A popular Korean barbecue restaurant that got its start in Denver will soon open its first Massachusetts location. Deji Korean Barbecue plans to open in Chelmsford this spring. The restaurant is best known for its all-you-can-eat menu. It's 844. WBUR supporters include Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. 
And I'm A. Martinez. Apple has lost a patent dispute, and tomorrow it plans to stop the online purchases of two of its newest smartphone watches. The medical device company Massimo, which also makes fitness trackers, says Apple illegally copied the technology behind its blood oxygen sensor. Apple, though, disputes that, but the U.S. International Trade Commission ruled against the company. All right, we're going to ask Philip Elmer DeWitt what it all means for customers. He has been covering Apple for four decades. Philip, it's been a long-running legal battle between the two. First federal court and then the International Trade Commission. How did Massimo make uh, its case? Well, they tell a, a pretty, uh, an embarrassing story about Apple, uh, that Apple reached out to them, uh, signed their non-disclosure agreement, saw their technology, and then promptly hired 25 of their people, including their top executives, and patented something that looks very much, enough was different enough from Massimo's patent to get past the uh, the patent office. So then why is Apple pulling its product off the shelf, considering that the formal review period for the ITC ruling is over, or not even over yet, actually? The ITC gave them 90 days to do something about the problem, and that expires on Christmas Eve. President uh, Biden has until, until Christmas Eve to inter intercede. What Apple has done is pull the products off the shelves and, and off their store just before that expires. And what they've actually done is created an artificial shortage so that if you wanted to buy one of these for Christmas, you better get out there and buy it before midnight tomorrow online or, or Christmas Eve if you want to get it. So what they've done is taken a, a patent ruling against them and turned it into a marketing opportunity. Right. It's becoming more desirable. I think people are probably, you know, crushing all the stores to try and get at this watch if they if they really want it. Um, you know, wondering, Philip, when it comes to something like this, like the blood oxygen sensor, I mean, how does how does Apple determine what kind of features and things go into, say, a, a smartwatch? Uh, is it because people clamor for it or is it because they feel that, uh, OK, this is what the, the new product needs? I don't think people were clamoring for this, although it's a useful uh, feature because, you know, if your blood oxygen falls too low, your lips turn blue and you, you fall over. It's how the oxygen gets from the lungs to the, the heart, uh, to the rest of the body. But they're selling the Apple Watch as a health device. And uh, this is just another feature that makes it stickier. Uh, if, you, if you like the watch, you'll probably buy other Apple products. And, and when it comes to Massimo, their product, is it better than, as, in terms of what it would purports to do than what Apple has for their product? They, they claim that it is better, and it sounds like it is, because what theirs is a continuous blood oxygen measure. So if, uh, if your oxygen falls low, it'll alert you, whereas Apple, you'd have to actually go out and ask the watch, how how's your oxygen doing? On the other hand, Massimo doesn't have a smartwatch on the market yet that, that includes mm. this. They have a a tracking device that does, but they're hoping to market a watch with this next year, uh, but they don't have a distribution network. Apple really owns okay. the smartwatch market right now. That's longtime Apple watcher, Philip Elmer DeWitt. He blogs at Apple 3.0. Philip, thanks. Thank you very much. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on talks that could lead to a new pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas, and how Denmark is using artificial intelligence in healthcare. 
It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Rhodes Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. WBUR's journalism is essential across our community and in your own daily life. Listener support keeps WBUR going. It's the largest share of our funding. As you make tax-deductible year-end contributions to organizations that make a positive difference in your life and in our communities, put WBUR on your list. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. The Colorado Supreme Court says former President Donald Trump cannot appear on the primary ballot there because of the Constitution's insurrection clause. The World Health Organization has named the new JN1 COVID variant as a variant of interest as it spreads rapidly. And a federal judge has ordered the names of over 150 people associated with Jeffrey Epstein to be released. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, supporting local charities during the Share the Love event. Learn more at MetroWestSubaru.com. Sunny and low 40s today, mostly clear, windy, and upper 20s tonight. Sunny and mid-30s tomorrow. It's 32 degrees in Boston. The world economy in the shape of a Christmas candy cane. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Total Wine and More, where shoppers can find a great Cabernet, bourbon, or sparkling wine for everyone on their list this holiday season. Total Wine and More. Drink responsibly. Be 21. And by Betterment, the automated investing platform that helps make it easy to be invested for the long term. Learn more at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. I'm David Brancaccio. First, the Senate has bailed and has not approved aid for Ukraine and Israel this year. Senate leaders will punt the issue into the new year when Congress already faces other crucial deadlines. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer reports. The Senate postponed its holiday break to continue work on the aid package for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan, along with border funding. But negotiators couldn't agree on new legislation tightening immigration laws, which was paired with the aid bill. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Minority Leader Mitch McConnell issued a joint statement yesterday. It says they hope the Senate can take swift action on the aid bill early in the new year. But even if it passes the Senate, the legislation faces hurdles in the House, where a significant block of Republicans opposes any more aid to Ukraine. The House and Senate also face a possible partial government shutdown in mid-January if they can't reach a deal to fund federal agencies before then. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. Since late October, the widely held S&P 500 index has gone up nearly 16 percent. Yesterday, it added another six-tenths of a percent, but this morning, S&P and Nasdaq futures are both down two-tenths percent. Signals that the U.S. economy is shedding inflation without recession have bolstered bonds, bringing down market interest rates. The benchmark 10-year interest rate down at 3.88 percent now. 
Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Schwab. Schwab knows that investors want control of their financial future. That's why when it comes to wealth management, Schwab is dedicated to giving investors more choices. More at schwab.com. And by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at uipath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. The econ nerds here at Marketplace want you to look at that candy cane on the tree and see not just holiday cheer and sugary delight, but also trade protectionism, overseas farm subsidies, inflation, and inelastic demand. The BBC's Aaron Delmore, a reporter for our partners at the BBC, raises some cane from New Jersey to Louisiana. When the holiday season rolls around, Dave Giambri's candy shop in Clementon, New Jersey, is bustling. Customers come for the candy canes. 38.05 altogether for you. Dave's candy canes are made almost entirely of sugar, and all are made by hand. The sugar mix is folded and prodded and twisted into that famous red and white pattern. As we mold the sweet treats, Dave tells me that his main ingredient is now costing him more. This year I did have a slight 4 to 5% increase on the final product. I want to say sugar went up maybe 15% from last year. He's not the only one feeling the pinch. The cost of sugar is rising worldwide. And it's rising in the U.S., where protectionist policy props up domestic producers. The U.S. is the world's fifth largest sugar producer, with sugar cane grown in the south and sugar beets in the north. The U.S. is also a top consumer. To find out more about that, we went to the land of Mardi Gras and jazz bands. Why? Because Louisiana is also the home of sugarcane. We drove an hour and a half west of New Orleans to visit one farm. Louisiana is the northernmost point where sugarcane is grown commercially. We're about a mile away from the Mississippi River and thousands of years of flooding left naturally occurring fertile topsoil, perfect for growing sugarcane. My name is Patrick Frischers. I'm a sugarcane farmer in Plaquemine, Louisiana. So how does sugar go from being something that you grow here to something that I go to the store and I pick up out of a box on the shelf? We'll plant a whole stalk in the ground, and the following year we'll go through with a billet harvester, harvest that cane. So this is a John Deere CH570 sugarcane billet harvester. All it does is cut sugarcane. It goes into an 18-wheeler, goes to the mill, and the mill presses the juice out of that sugarcane, that stalk of sugarcane. The mill is the middleman between the farm and the refinery. It's where the sugarcane starts to look like the sugar we keep in our kitchens. My name is Charlie Schudmack. I'm the Chief Operating Officer of Core Texas Sugar Mill, and we're in White Castle, Louisiana. Sugarcane's like a sponge. You have to wet it and squeeze it, except it's stubborn. It doesn't want to give out that juice, so it takes uh, about 800 tons of force on top of the cane to, to squeeze all that juice out. The Department of Agriculture protects domestic sugar production from foreign competition by taxing imports. A report by the Government Accountability Office in October found that the sugar program creates higher prices and that Americans pay around twice the world price for sugar. While the sugar farmers benefit, it's not like they don't have other problems. Last year we had a very good crop. The problem was input costs were, quite frankly, through the roof. Potassium, for example, 
$198 a ton went to $1,000 a ton. You have to apply that nutrient to the crop, so you have to take that hit. So the more, even though it could be a great crop with an average or even above average price for your commodity, you're still feeling the squeeze and there's almost no way to plan for it. Can a farm like yours compete with foreign sugar? Our farm and American sugar farmers in general will outcompete anybody in the world. We just can't compete against a farmer receiving direct subsidies. Back in New Jersey, Dave Giambri's sugar supply is waiting in bags to become one of his famous peppermint candy canes. He's one of the few still making them by hand. Most of them are made overseas because of the price of sugar and labor. Not many more made in the States. It's a dying art, it really is. As we watch customers put candy canes and chocolate goodies into their baskets, he tells me he thinks Americans are willing to pay up to satisfy their sweet tooths. When prices go up, I just increase prices. Gas prices rise up, people still drive. They're still going to buy a candy cane for their tree, whether they pay 10 cents or a dollar for it. Um, it's something that makes Americans feel good. In Clementon, New Jersey, I'm Erin Delmore for Marketplace. Giambri Quality Sweets. Giambri with a G is in South Jersey, about a half hour from Philly. I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Lots of sun today, along with temperatures in the low 40s. It'll grow a bit windy tonight as it drops into the upper 20s and a few clouds move in. Sunny tomorrow in the mid-30s. It's 32 degrees in Boston, and the BBC News Hour is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.